evening, friends. Well, Stephen has already accomplished the first thing I was going to do, which is to remind the folks who are not normally meeting here in Hope Hall that, uh, in fact, we would be looking at um, the last part of 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. So that's what we're going to do. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll start our reading this evening at verse number 35. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first Adam became a living being or living soul, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And so is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold... I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. And God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Just a brief word or two of summary of what we looked at in the earlier two occasions. Um, Corinth was an assembly that was full of problems. I don't know what the collective noun is for hot potato, but if I could think of one, that would describe the situation in Corinth. Let's just stick to alliteration and say there was a plethora of problems in Corinth. 
Arguably the most serious of them all is the one that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Because in the chapter we read earlier on and where our reading started tonight, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Now we're not told whether these people believed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus or not. I think it is probable that to some degree they did. What they didn't believe in was the resurrection of anyone else, and in particular, the resurrection of believers. They probably argued that the resurrection of Jesus was a one-off event. That was probably what they said. We don't really know, but we are told in terms that they, they denied the resurrection of believers, the coming resurrection of believers. And we pointed out on that occasion that Paul's real argument in this chapter is that the resurrection of Christ in any event and the resurrection of believers in the coming day are inextricably linked. And if you you deny the resurrection, the coming resurrection, you are for all practical purposes denying the resurrection of Christ as well. Very briefly then, there's four paragraphs before the two that we read together tonight. The first, the opening one, which is going to verse 11, the resurrection proclaimed, the resurrection proclaimed. And Paul's point there is the resurrection proclaimed for the resurrection of Christ is the very heart of the Christian gospel. The very heart of the Christian gospel is the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection proclaimed. Then in the next little section, verse 12 downwards to verse 19, We might write over it the words that Professor Bruce writes over it in his expanded paraphrase of Paul's letters. No resurrection, no gospel. I think that sums it up very pungently. I couldn't better it if I may say so. No resurrection, no gospel. And then in the next section, he moves on, and we're getting nearer to the subject matter of our reading tonight. He moves on to the idea of Christ the firstfruits. And that means that the resurrection of Christ secures and guarantees the resurrection of his people. And then finally, for this introduction, he tells us the resurrection as encouragement. And that's the section that runs from verse 29 down to verse 34. And in that little section, the apostle says, the resurrection gives meaning to present suffering, present distress, present persecution. The resurrection of Christ gives meaning, and the coming resurrection of believers for that matter, gives meaning to these sad events in a believer's life. But let's move on now to the section that we have read together tonight. And what it really sums up, we can sum it up in a word or two, the full and final hope of the Christian is resurrection. Now, several of you know me pretty well, and I hope you will agree that I'm not a particularly critical person. At least I don't view myself as being such. But I want to say something I hope will not be misunderstood. Sometimes when we go to Christian funerals these days, quite a lot is said about the person, far more than historically used to be said. I don't have a problem with that, but I'm just stating it as a fact. We often hear a great deal more about the person than used to be said. Sometimes quite a lot is made of the intermediate state. You know, the situation believers are in after they die, but before the coming resurrection. But sometimes I've been very disappointed that almost nothing is said about the resurrection, either of the Lord Jesus or of his people. And that is the full and final hope of the Christian. Paul says in Philippians, to be with Christ is better by far. Now, I'm not building a huge thing in this, but notice he says, better by far. The best 
is beyond that, and the best is what will happen when the Lord returns and his people who have passed away, who sleep in Jesus, are raised from the dead. So let's always bear in mind then that the resurrection is the great and final hope of the Christian. Now in verse number 35, Paul introduces us to hypothetical objections. Actually, they maybe weren't hypothetical. I think it's highly probable that Paul had had objections like this. Maybe he was preaching in a synagogue and some Sadducees were there. Because remember, the Sadducees denied the resurrection, whereas the Pharisees, and Paul would still say in certain circumstances, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, of course, had always been taught the bodily resurrection in the future. So maybe this is these questions, these almost like a heckler, aren't they? Or at least someone interrupting the message. How are the dead raised and with what kind of body do they come? It could have been a Sadducee, perhaps, in one of the synagogues when Paul was preaching on the resurrection. Maybe it was when he was preaching in the Agora of Corinth, you know, the open square of Corinth. Maybe when he was preaching there, the voice of the philosopher would be, read, would be raised. And these would be the questions, how are the dead raised? Maybe with a great tone of skepticism. And with what body do they come anyway? So these are questions that Paul had probably faced on many occasions in the past, but now he raises them probably based on actual interruption in the course of his argument here. Now notice that Paul, as it happened, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. He answers the two questions in the reverse order than what they're put here, aren't they? First of all, he first of all answers the question, what, with what kind of body do they come? And then it's only after that he answers the first question, how are the dead raised? Notice his response in verse number 36, you foolish person, you foolish person. By that he means that someone who asks these questions, or at least someone who asks these questions in an argumentative and a sceptical kind of objection, such a person is really without any moral or spiritual discernment. It's a wee bit similar to what Paul said in one of his trials. He said, do you think it a thing impossible that God can raise the dead? And you know, in a sense, that is what this is all about. Bodily resurrection, whenever it takes place, is always a proof of the God who is in heaven is a God who is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. And once we concede that, we have to say, it is not a thing impossible that God can raise the dead. You see, the Sadducees and the Greek philosophers would have been in agreement on this. It just couldn't happen. It just couldn't happen. We just state that as a proposition. It just can't happen, so therefore it will not happen. But Paul's going to show, of course, that God is all-powerful and God in his power can accomplish this great act of resurrection. Indeed, he has already accomplished it, hasn't he? He has already accomplished it, and that's the point of the opening part of the chapter, in the glorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's just, before we look at the details, summarize the answer to this question then, with what kind of body do they come? Well, first of all, it's very important to note two balancing truths. On the one hand, there is some organic link between our present body and the body we're going to have in the future. If we don't say that, we're, we're not really talking of resurrection at all. 
If it's really going to be true resurrection, there has to be some link between the body we have now and the body we have in the future. And I believe very strongly that personal identity is preserved in resurrection. That personal identity is preserved in resurrection. But having said that, it's not going to be as if we're going to live for Ian and Ian and Ian and Ian and a million years and a million years and a million years, if we could even use that kind of language, in bodies that are just like the present body. I think it's quite important to attention here. On the one hand, there is some link between the present body and the body that shall be. But on the other, as our Lord actually makes very clear, both in Matthew and in Luke, that there's going to be very big differences between the resurrection body and the present body. So from one point of view, there's going to be a connection, but from another point of view, there's going to be a radical, radical difference between the body that shall be and the bodies we have now. But then secondly, it will be a body like the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus. That's very, very important. And we noticed that in our reading tonight, didn't we? Put very clearly in verse number 48. We have borne the image of the man of dust, that's Adam, but we shall bear the image of the man from heaven. How good a promise is that? John puts it perhaps in slightly simpler language, doesn't he? In 1 John chapter 3, we shall be like him. That's so typical of John, isn't it? Words that are short, words that are one level are simple, but words that in another level are absolutely profound and staggering. We shall be like him. And you see, these are the ideas we're going to look at in detail tonight. It's going to be some relation to the present body, personal identity preserved. But on the other hand, it's going to be far more glorious, far more powerful, far richer in every way. And also it's going to be like a body like the Saviour's. Now, how all these things are going to take place in detail? Well, you have to ask wiser men than me. And how all these things can be fully reconciled? Well, I'm not so sure they can be absolutely logically, but I believe Scripture teaches all of these things. And that's what's presented to us. Some connection with the present body, but a body that's entirely different. And above all, and best of all, a body like the glorious body, as Paul puts it in Philippians. I was just reading that chapter this morning, Philippians chapter 3. A body like the glorious body, the body of his glory that the Lord Jesus has in heaven now. So the main point that Paul makes in answer to this foolish person, to this heckler, to this objector, is to draw an analogy from everyday life, and that's the analogy between the seed and the full flower. Take a very, very simple illustration. I'm quite fond of apples, but, um, you know, when you see a little seed, little pippin, it bears no relation to the apple that shall be. That's such an easy illustration for us to remember. Just that little black pippin in the apple, and then we see the lovely apple that it shall be. You see, it's the same idea. This is the idea that the apostle's using here. He's developing this idea of the kernel and going into the ground, and then what comes out of the ground. Whatever it be a plant or a tree or a fruit, the seed has the organic potential of all that shall be, but it's entirely different. It's far more insignificant. It doesn't look anything like the glorious flower or the lovely fruit that will eventually be seen. That's his argument that he puts forward in these verses. And actually what he's saying is this, God is a God of infinite variety. 
That's why he talks about all these earthly being, earthly bodies and heavenly bodies. He's making the point that God as the great creator is a God of infinite variety. There are many different seeds and there are many different flowers, but the flower is always more glorious than the seed. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The seed is the picture of the present body. The putting the seed into the ground is the picture of death. And the full flower is the picture of resurrection. But just as the blossoms on the tree are far better than the insignificant little seed, so the resurrection life will be far more glorious. So the resurrection life will be far richer. So the resurrection life will be far more beautiful in every way than even the best of life down here. And that's the point the apostle is making. God is the God of infinite variety. He's the creator God. And this we see that the seed and the flower are intimately connected at one level, yet at another level, contrasting. Life that shall richer, fuller be, the hymn writer speaks about. And that eloquently, I think, but simply expresses the resurrection life compared with the present life. So let's turn now to verses 43 down. And Paul's going to develop this contrast in greater detail. He, he thinks on one hand of the present body, particularly in death, which is used, uh, death, the sowing is the metaphor for death here. And then in contrast to that, he contrasts the coming body, the resurrection body. The first thing he says is this, the present body, especially in death, is corruptible or perishable. P corruptible or perishable. It's subject, when it's placed in the grave, to decay and corruption. The only human being of whom that was not true was one who was not only a human being, but, uh, but God himself, the Lord Jesus. Of him it is said that his flesh saw no corruption. But I think that's the only exception. Everyone else who's laid in the grave, they will suffer, be, be perishable or corruptible, the effects of death. But in contrast, the resurrection body will be imperishable or incorruptible and will be so for all eternity. What a contrast. There's more to come, but that's the first contrast. The body laid in the grave will be subject to decay and corruption. But the resurrection body of that very same person, that very same believer, but the very same per person will have a body that is imperishable, where there will be no corruption, no decay for all eternity. Not only will it not decay, but it cannot decay. It's an imperishable, it's an incorruptible body. Then the apostle goes on to say, secondly, the body we have now, particularly at death, is marked by dishonor. I heard the late Tom Aiken speak on one occasion and in a similar subject to this. And in, in the course of his ministry, he was a minor for most of his working, if not all of his working life. He mentioned on one occasion when there was a serious industrial accident and someone died, as sadly was often the case in the former days in some of these industries, and someone died. And one of his workmates turned to him and said, does it come to this? Does it come to this? And I think that's the sort of idea that Paul has in mind when he says, it's marked by dishonor. It's marked by dishonor. It comes to this. But what a contrast, my dear friends, tonight. The apostle says, that body is marked by dishonor. The resurrection body is marked by glory. I think what Paul is saying here is this. 
the resurrection body will be fashioned after the body of the Lord Jesus. And God's ultimate purpose for his people is they shall be conformed to the image of his son. G.N. Darby puts it well, doesn't he? And is it so? I shall be like thy son. Is this the grace that he for me has won? Father of glory thought beyond all thought in glory to his own, blessed like this brought. You see, believers are going to share the risen, exalted humanity of the Lord Jesus, the glorious humanity of the Lord Jesus in his present session at God's right hand and high, one day will be shared with all his people to be conformed to the image of his son. So in contrast then to that which is marked by dishonor, it will be marked by glory. And not only will disease be gone and disability be gone and death be gone, but maybe even better temptation will be gone. And better still, sin will be gone, will be marked by glory. What a contrast to the dishonor. And then Paul moves on and he says the present body is marked by weakness. We've already alluded to the various things that can happen. There can be death in an accident. There can be death due to some deadly disease. There can be death due to long-standing disease or disability. Paul sums it up. It is marked by weakness. The very fact that the body eventually dies is a proof of that weakness. But in contrast... The body that is to be will be marked by power. Be marked by power. Well, that we can look at that from two or three points of view. First of all, the power of the, of the resurrection body is demonstrated. Paul merely speaks of the resurrection here. But I'm sure you all know that to get the fuller picture, you have to bring in 1 Thessalonians 4 as well. And the power of the resurrected body is easily seen in this by the rapture. That having been raised, the bodies of the saints and indeed the living saints being transformed will be caught up. Now, none of us could be caught up tonight. But these believers, those believers who will be raised and those believers who will be alive and remaining on that coming day, the power will be seen of the resurrection body by the very fact to be able to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. From another point of view, of course, Resurrection, as we've tried to show earlier, is itself a proof of the omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God. That was seen in our Lord's resurrection, wasn't it? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, would clearly establish for us, would it not, that the proof of God's power is seen in the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus What's the proof of God's love, my dear friends, tonight? It's the cross in Calvary's hill. Romans 5 makes that abundantly clear. God commends his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's the ultimate proof of the power of God then? It's the fact that the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, and the seal is burst, and better far even than these, that the Lord Jesus is seated as a risen man, ascended and exalted at God's right hand and high. Now that glorious humanity and that powerful humanity will be seen in believers in a coming day. So that's quite a list, isn't it? Perishable, imperishable. Dishonor, glory, weakness, power. But finally Paul sums it up. A natural or a soulish body on the one hand and a spiritual body on the other. 
Now, some folk might think that a spiritual body is a contradiction in terms. What I think it means is this. It is a body that is fully, fully able to embody the Holy Spirit of God. Believers even now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But there's coming a day when they will receive a body that really embodies the Holy Spirit. That's why, that's why, on several occasions in Paul's letters, he makes it very clear that our present indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the security, is the guarantee of the coming glory. That's why he says that. It's not just because of some fancy. It's because of that correlation. It's because the resurrection body is going to be a spiritual body that Paul can say, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, as he does in Romans 8. Or he says in Ephesians that we are sealed with the Spirit and we have the Spirit indwelling us as a guarantee of the coming glory. So, but and from another point of view, the second thing I would like to say about the spiritual body, first of all, it fully embodies the Holy Spirit of God. But putting it as simply as I can, it is a body that will be fitted for life in heaven. It's a body that will be fitted for life in heaven. And indeed, if we look farther forward in God's program, footed for life in the new heaven and the new earth. That's the point of being a spiritual body. It's a body that will be fitted for life in heaven. Now, in contrast, the natural or soulish body, that's the time-bound body in which we all live. It is a body that is suited for life in earth. But in contrast, the spiritual body is a body that's suited for life in heaven. That's, I think, the point that Paul is making. One is suited for life on earth. The other is suited for life in heaven. The spiritual body fully and completely embodies the Holy Spirit. And that's why, as I made a point a moment ago, that we know that the presence of the Spirit in our lives and the power of the Spirit in our lives is the guarantee and security that one day, one day, we shall have better far even than what we have now. And that is this spiritual body. Paul goes on to say there in verses 45 down to 48 that we derive the natural body from Adam, but we derive the spiritual body from Christ. At the end of the day, one old writer said, there really are only two men. There's Adam and Christ. And every other person that's ever lived is really hanging from, the, from them, from their, from their belt, as it were. You see, the natural body or the soulish body, it comes from Adam, whereas the spiritual body comes from Christ. Now notice the distinction in verse number 45. Notice the high honor that's given to the Lord Jesus there. Adam became a living soul. But of Christ, the last Adam, it is said, he became not a living spirit, but a life-giving spirit. So he actually endows us. He actually blesses us. He actually gives to us. He actually grants to us this spiritual body. Isn't that amazing? You know, this is Adam after the fall, isn't it? Dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. He's the man of dust. And these bodies we have are derived from that line, from the line of Adam. But you know, the Savior, the risen living Savior, is a life-giving spirit. And he not only gives eternal life now, we will receive eternal life in its fullness when we receive the resurrection body. He's the life-giving spirit. And then Paul sums all of this up. We have borne the image of the man of dust. That's true of every one of us, isn't it? 
But notice the future tense. We shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. What a description of the Lord Jesus, the man from heaven. And what a promise is given here. We shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Then will be fulfilled, as I've quoted already, the words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, to be conformed to the image of his son. Then will be confirmed and carried into full effect the words of John that we quoted earlier from 1 John chapter 3. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Well, I think you'll agree tonight that Paul has given a pretty comprehensive answer to objection number two, with what kind of body do they come? And I would be very surprised if the objector was not utterly silenced if Paul had given them this argument in the synagogue or in the public square that he gives now in the word of God in 1 Corinthians. But remember, there was another question. How are the dead raised? How are the dead raised? And I suggest Paul then moves on to answer the first question now from verse 50 down to verse number 56 or 57. From 50 to 57, he gives us the answer to the first question, how are the dead raised? I suppose verse 50 is really, in a sense, saying much the same as he's been saying in the preceding paragraph. I take flesh and blood to just be another description of the kind of bodies that we have now. Simply a description of the kind of bodies we have now. Bodies that are fitted for earth, fitted for life on earth. But such bodies would not, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that must be in context, the fully and completed kingdom of God in its ultimate manifestation. Because believers now, of course, are subjects of the kingdom of God. We've been transferred, says Paul, into the kingdom of the Son of his love. This is a reign. It's not a realm, not like the United Kingdom or the kingdom of Spain or the kingdom of Belgium or any of the other surviving kingdoms in Europe. No, it's not a realm, it's not a piece of geographical territory, the kingdom of God. It's a reign, and those who are in it are those who own the rights, the crown rights of the Redeemer, who own the crown rights of the Lord Jesus as our King and our Lord. So it clearly can't be that sense of the kingdom that Paul has in mind. What I think he, he means is the final and full manifestation, even beyond the millennium, the eternal dimension, I submit, of the eternal kingdom of God. And he really does say the same thing in the second clause in the verse, the perishable will not inherit the imperishable. And our heavenly inheritance, remember, Peter tells us, is by its nature imperishable. So in very simple terms then, there has to be a big change. <laughs> there has to be a great change before we enter into that full revelation and full experience of the kingdom and that's what Paul's going to say. Such a change is going to take place. Such a change is going to take place. A change from mere flesh and blood to the image of the man from heaven. A change from that which is perishable to that which is imperishable. Behold! He's drawing attention to it, isn't it? I show you a mystery. Now, I know a well-taught congregation like this will not need to be told, but I'm now going to say... This is not something that's mysterious. My grandchildren persuaded me to play Cluedo a night or two ago. I haven't played it for quite a while, and it was a kind of slightly different version of Cluedo than the one we have at home. It's all about a dinosaur being stolen rather than the 
the murder in the study and Captain Mustard and whatever, you know. So um, it's not a mystery in that sense. And those of you who are fans of P.D. James or Agatha Christie, it's not, it's not a mystery in that sense either. It simply means almost the opposite of what it means in ordinary English. It means something that once was a secret, once was hidden, but now has been revealed. And become a wee bit more precise, now has been revealed by the Holy Spirit, and now has been redeemed by the Holy Spirit to the apostles. I think that would be a good working definition of mystery in the biblical sense of the word. Some of you will have read F.A.W.E. Vine's book, The Twelve Mysteries of Scripture. Don't ask me to recite what they are all, just the top of my head. Maybe Sandy or Stephen could help you with that. But this is one of the more important of these mysteries. Behold, I show you a mystery. Tremendous statement follows, doesn't it? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What a tremendous statement. It's very parallel to what the Apostle says in 1 Thessalonians 4, isn't it? We who are alive and remaining. He says, look, not all believers will have fallen asleep. Now, we don't know. We don't know. These things are really beyond us. They're in God's final hands. But it's possible that the majority of believers are now already in the glory. That's possible. If we look back through all the ages of the church to this point and now. But that's not the point. Some will be asleep in Jesus, certainly. But there will be a company alive and remaining when the Lord returns. And of them, and of both categories, it is said, we shall all be changed. Now, logically, that means that those who are alive and remaining at the Lord's return will not die, but will receive a resurrection body without ever having died. And Paul links the two together, both those who are raised and those who are transformed in this simple word, changed. For they'll all be changed, some by resurrection and all by transformation. And some of that all without ever having, ever having died. And they'll be clothed upon, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, with that house which is from heaven. What a prospect, my dear friends. What a prospect. There will be a company on earth, and of them it shall be said, we shall all be changed. Some by resurrection, others by transformation. Those who are living, receiving effectively a resurrection body without ever having died at all. Isn't that tremendous? How will such a thing take place? Well, only by the power of God. Only by the power of God. And we've already noticed that, that Paul in 1 Corinthians tells us that we shall be caught up together. The two companies caught up together. And best of all, to meet the Lord. To meet the Lord in the air. And now we have it then. It's going to take place in the shortest possible period of time. Isn't that amazing? In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye. Now that's hardly measurable, is it? Hardly measurable. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. But such is the power of God that these two great events will take place. Or maybe three. First of all, the resurrection of the sleeping saints. Then the transformation of the living saints. And then the rapture of them both. And it will all take place in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye. Isn't that amazing? The moment in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound. I take the sounding of the trumpet at least to have, well, probably it's much the same, but look at three aspects of it at least. First of all, I suggest in context here, it's the trumpet of the Lord's victory. 
I think that's fairly clear. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final victory. Christ, in a sense, has won the victory, hasn't he? He's won the victory by his death and resurrection. But this will be a public display of that victory. And the trumpet, I think, is a symbol of the Lord's victory. Secondly, clearly in context here, the trumpet is going to be used to awaken, awaken the sleeping saints. In other words, to bring them to resurrection life. One of D.L. Moody's visits to Scotland, he was taken round the churchyard, um, just down from St. Giles, the churchyard just opposite the, um, the, the National Library of Scotland. And um, when he went round there, the brother who took him round showed him all the tombs of some of the Covenanters and some of the other great servants of Christ, the tremendous heritage we have here in Scotland. And Moody's comment was this, what precious dust, what precious dust is here. And, you know, we can say that often if we visit where leading believers have been laid to rest, what precious dust is here. But the trumpet shall sound, the trumpet shall sound, until the trump of God be heard, until the ancient graves be stirred, and with that great commanding word, the Lord shall come. And I think this is exactly what we have here. The hymn writer gets it absolutely right. Because the trumpet will sound. And the church will be mustered, won't it? The church will be mustered to be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. What a day that will be. How truly then will be fulfilled the words of the prophet Isaiah. He shall see of the travail of his soul. And he shall be satisfied. So that's what's going to take place and therefore, all that Paul has already described is now described as being the future event. The perishable will put on the imperishable. This mortal body, subject to death, although still living on this earth, will put on immortality and from now on will live in this changed body forever. In this changed body forever. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The tremendous triumph of Christ as we indicated by the sounding of the trumpet. And death will be defeated on that final day. And then Paul concludes this mighty section with verse 57. Thanks be to God. Those of you who are musically binded I know will have the relevant part of the Messiah pounding through your brain at this very moment. But thanks be to God. You know, thanks be to God for this tremendous victory who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If this was originally a sermon, and it may well have been, as we noted when the objector's voice was raised, every good sermon has to have application, in my judgment, or it's hardly preaching at all. And in verse 58, Paul gives the application, doesn't he? He gives the application. To the Corinthians and to us, therefore, it's a very obvious application, isn't it? Therefore, it's all based on what we've read already. My beloved brothers, be steadfast and immovable. You know, there was just a danger that some of the folks in Corinth would be swept away with these strange ideas. Because, you know, these ideas were very acceptable in the Greek culture, which disparaged the body and emphasized the so-called spiritual, which disparaged that that was material and emphasized that that's kind of philosophical. They might have been swept away with these ideas, and, you know, we can endanger too of being swept away with some of the ideas of our age. And therefore, in the light of the Lord's return and in the light of the coming resurrection, transformation and rapture, 
We need to be steadfast and immovable, holding fast to the apostolic teaching, holding fast to the word of God, holding fast to the gospel, holding fast to all these truths that are revealed to us in the New Testament by the apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We are called to be steadfast and immovable. But more, we're also called to be abounding. Not just abounding, but always abounding in the work of the Lord. So that's a a good challenge for us, isn't it? First of all, to be steadfast and immovable as far as the truth is concerned. And then to always abound in the work of the Lord as far as our testimony is concerned. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Oh yes, the rapture will be succeeded by the judgment seat, won't it? And then will come to pass this final clause. Your labor will not be in vain. For it will be graciously rewarded by the Lord, the righteous judge, on that coming day. What a hope lies before us. We live in a world, in some ways, very like the first century world, marked by hopelessness and despair. But Christ, our hope in life and death, is here brought before us, is he not? And finally, looking forward to that great day when that hope will be realized, when in the words of the hymn we just quoted, the Lord shall come. May God bless his word to our hearts.